To see examples of what we talked about on this episode, along with further information, go to bunchofdorks.com. Welcome, everyone, to... Two Dimension Podcast. The comic book podcast... With no direction. Alright, you've heard the songs, you know what you're listening to. This is Don. Uh, we're rook free tonight. That's okay, because I'm here with Randy Nunley about his new project. Hi, Randy. Hey, how you doing? So, um, you got a Kickstarter. I'm already seeing that you're way past what you were hoping to get. Uh, could you yeah. tell us about the project? Uh, yeah, so uh, the project is Cosmo Natalia, and it's live on Kickstarter now, and uh, you know, we, we started out uh, with a with a pretty modest goal of, uh, of you know two thousand dollars, and it uh, it really jumped up like quite a lot more than Dean and I ever could have hoped for. And uh, yeah, the book's about uh, it's about a, a Soviet era cosmonaut that was born in Ukraine who goes on to like a long journey across space uh, to to find Planet X. But you know she's in space for about thirty years, and uh, you know a lot of things have changed back on Earth while she's been away. So, you know, we don't get too much into all that in the first issue, but, you know, over, over the course of the series, that's really what it's, what it's about is, uh, you know, how, how the world has changed in her absence and, uh, and the kind of adjustments that she's going to have to make to get back into, you know, to ultimately to rejoin society. Yeah, I found it fascinating what you're talking about. And later on, she runs into some Americans. Uh-huh. And... I found that fascinating about, you know, I guess technology has changed. They came later, but, you know, I don't know. I, it's a, that's a fascinating idea because to people listening, if you weren't alive at the time, the world really changed in the late 80s, 88 and 89. The Soviet Union collapsed. Um, all of a sudden, there's all these countries I never heard of because before it was all Russia. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the Ukraine. Soviet Union, the Red yeah. yeah. The Ukraine to us was always Russia. I remember um, Nadia, the Olympic gymnast. Everybody referred to her as the Russian girl. Oh, she was from Ukraine, as most of them, the gymnasts were. But yeah, it's um. That is kind of fascinating, especially these days right now. Ukraine is always in the news. Um, yeah. And I guess she finds out about it, about the war and everything in the series, from what I understand. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, when she uh, when she gets there, you know, she's she's fresh out of the late 60s and you know, you're very super nationalistic, you know, so she's immediately going to dislike the American that she meets. And, mm. uh, you know, she's, she's not, she's going to think that, you know, all these things she's learning is propaganda and lies, you know, she's, she'll have to, she'll struggle to come to terms with that. And, uh, you know, then we've got like a, like a villain on the planet who's kind of this, uh, this evil, like middling warlord. And, uh, he's, he's actually going to be kind of analogous to, you know, to a, a Vladimir Putin sort of character who, you know, he knows about earth and, and sees it as something that has always belonged to him and, and plans to retake it someday. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the crux of the story, you know, Beginning with this first issue, which is mostly about the trip there. Nice. Now, the plan you mentioned Planet X. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, is this where is it at? Uh, so, like Planet X is like just a, kind of a source of fascination for me because uh, people have known for a long time that we have something in our solar system that that pulls on like the orbits of Uranus and Neptune, but nobody really knows what it is. So, you know, the scientific community just calls it Planet X. And, uh, you know, so that's the kind of the destination for this this story is this mysterious, you know, like planet or planetoid. And, uh, you know, in, in this story, it's a it's something that only comes around, gets close enough to Earth every 5000 years or so. And that's why nobody's ever seen it before. Mm. And, uh, you know, of course, it's, you know, it's, it's a planet with life on it. And, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of fun things that we're going to see in the book. There's, you know, alien dinosaurs and sentient fungi, and, you know. You know, every silly thing that Dean and I could come up with to get into this book, we did. Because even though it's got very serious themes and undertones, it, it is like 
like at its root, it's a you know, it's a comedy. It's a like a, like an airplane spaceman spiff kind of goofy comedy. Yeah. yeah, I read that in the thing. It's a, a lighthearted thing, but everything I had read, I seen on your Kickstarter, it looks really serious. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, yeah, you know, and I, I don't want to get like like too heavy into it, but yeah, yeah. there's it's not all fun and games, you know, right. for sure. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, I have to say the pages are fantastic. The visuals, the the layouts, um, it's staggering work. I'm taking it. You've done comic work before. Yeah, uh, I, I did some comics and uh, I worked for with Double Stew and uh, a couple of other smaller publishers in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, you know, like family happened and other things, you know, the, the market yeah. crashed in 2009. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd stepped away from it. For, for a long time and this is kind of my my first thing getting back into it but yeah I, you know i years behind me doing uh, uh comics and uh, gaming books and illustrations for uh you know like ogl mongoose in uh in england and a couple of other odd things that i can't remember it's been so long okay yeah it's really seasoned work um yeah it's it's nice um I like the pages how you got them. They're they're not simple pages. They're they're simple to read, but the compositions, all the stuff you got laid out in them. I love the one where um she's in a tube. Oh you know? yeah, yeah, the cryo tube. Yeah, and then there's a cover with her in front of the the spacecraft. God, these are these are nice. Yeah, um, I, think, uh, I think I think the one in front of the window. Is that what you're talking about in front of the round uh, window? Well, there's a cover. It's on the Kickstarter page, but I think it's her standing in front of a space a spacecraft. You're oh yeah, that's the the pinup salute. Oh, that's that's nice. Yeah, it's sweet. Yeah, I like how your um your your points of perspective, you know, where you're looking from. It's um it's interesting. <laughs> You know, a lot of people when they draw, they draw straight on. You're you're drawing at um different angles. Um, I yeah. don't know. I just found yeah, that. Yeah. I was really bad about just just drawing everything straight from the front all the time. It was a, it's a really hot, tough habit to break and to you know, get out of. The, everybody has that comfort zone starting out. I think just drawing things head on. Well, and doing yeah. like that warm's eye view, you know, is is really <laughs> difficult. So one one thing we talk about on the show a lot was um. If you ever try to do comic books or strips, a lot of people, I learned this in college in a drawing and painting class. Mm-hmm. Everybody had to draw one, you know, a piece of a conversation, some kind of sequential. And a lot of the people in the class were drawing panels with two heads on one side, you know, one on each left and one right talking. And it's just like, okay. Yeah. And when you have to do that, you start thinking, wait a minute. Then you start looking, especially romance comics. If you see romance comics, you see a lot of conversations. It's always flowing and interesting. But you start realizing when you're trying to do a comic, how do you do it and not go so crazy that you confuse the reader? And uh, so when I was seeing everything you're doing, I thought, oh, this is, it's pleasing. Um, And there's a lot of stuff he's putting in each, each panel, each drawing, uh, the pages, I don't like to use the word complex, but the drawings are complex, but the, it flows, it reads, it's, um, that's, that's a hard act to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, thank you for that. But, uh, it's, you know, I spent a lot of time like looking at the, you know, like I watch a lot of movies and, uh, paying attention to camera angles that they use in cinema mm-hmm. and yeah. the way that they like translate focus from one character to another. And you know, being mindful of all of those kind of these tips and tricks that you know countless other people have already done and done well before you, uh, it, it's really helpful to get you like a more interesting and dynamic page. And I'll tell you one of my bigger pet peeves is the you know, I don't know if you spend any time on like webtoon or anything like that, but you find all, you find all of these uh you know these kind of amateurish strips where it's basically just people talking and as you scroll through it, you realize like there's only really two or three drawings in it. And it's just like, kind of a head, neck and shoulder shot from one person to the next and nothing in the background. And I was like, gosh, you know, if that's all I was doing, I could probably make six issues a month, you know, <laughs> you know, it's really 
like it's about the drawing for me you know and we made this without a real deadline i think it took me three months to make to you know for the line art but yeah, yeah i really like having full backgrounds with a lot of interesting stuff to look at you know i, I kind of like your comment about the you know the webtoons which is a fun place to go sometimes i see yeah. a lot of these comics where the person is obviously not really an artist but i mm -hmm. see it i kind of enjoy it because i see they understand sequences and they have um they have something to say they're usually kind of funny but you're right it's just um a couple of limited drawings yeah, yeah. and but i think some of these are they're made by like people that want to write comics but yeah. don't necessarily afford an artist <laughs> you know so yeah. that's i think that's where a lot of those come from and don't get me wrong there's a lot of great stuff on there yeah but i know what you mean i I like comics because of the art. I mean, I love stories too, but I came into it, the art. If the art's not good, um, mm -hmm. it's not gonna, it's hard for me to really enjoy a story. And I, I have though, if the artwork's not well, but yeah, to me, it was always art for it first, which is why sometimes I've read some really, really poor comic stories, but yeah, nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the writing really does matter though, because you know, like the greatest art, you know, it'll get, it'll get you to pick up a comic every time. But, you know, are you going to go back to the second one or the third one if the story's yeah. no good? And so it's really important to me that to have, you know, like at least, you know, like a, like at least at least mediocre writing. And, uh, you know, and I got a lot of good help from Dean and uh, he did an amazing job. I think we did a little better than mediocre, you know, or at least I hope we did on this one. Well, that's one question I have on the strip. Uh -huh. uh, we talked about this off mic a little bit. Is this, did you two develop this together? Did one of you have the idea for it? Um, how did this come about? So, uh, uh, I, you know, I was been on a hiatus, you know, for about 10 years, you know, you know, I was uh, raising my, raising my two stepsons and, but they're, you know, they're, they're grown now and uh, I have a lot more free time than I used to. So I started drawing again and I was just drawing this astronaut fighting, uh, you know, a pack of dinosaurs off. It's mm -hmm. just kind of a fun thing. And at the same time, I was talking to uh, to Dean Page, who is the the writer and creator of uh, of uh, the Return of Jack Sunrise, and I was helping him with his campaign. And we we were I showed him the drawing. We just started talking about it, and this whole story started to unfold. So, like literally in like two hours, I had like kind of broken down the three issues and how it was going to go. But I realized very quickly, I was like, I really need somebody to help like kind of write this and turn this into a real narrative. And uh, so yeah, Dean just jumped. Dean, I say Dean, Dean, I gotta learn how to talk. Uh, Dean jumped all over it. And, uh, you know, we very quickly put the script together for the first issue. So it was, a, I mean, it was a very fast, very organic kind of a process that happened. And, and me and him get along great. So it was, it was real easy. And, uh, you know, we never, we, we didn't actually like finish the script. We kind of like got it into like a rough breakdown of a, a page by page kind of a breakdown and then started drawing. And then as the drawings came out, we would revise the script. And as the script changed, you know, we changed some drawings and it there was a lot of back a lot more back and forth than I think you normally get when you're making a comic. Yeah. That actually makes sense. It kinda has a not a rigid feel. I mean I'm saying that the drawings are tight. The stories seem tight, but it it's kinda like how a band, when they're when a really good band is putting an album together. You know, they're everybody's coming up with ideas and putting it in there and makes it really fleshed out. That's I, that's interesting. Um, you also one question I have: you have a colorist, you also have a flattener. Now I've seen this term before, and I have to admit I'm kind of ignorant on it. What exactly is a flattener? So the Happy Artis is a a guy that we hired that Dean knew, and I hired him to do the flats, and that's something that's for uh, when you're doing digital colors. Um, you want to you lay everything out in flat colors first and you layer them in such a way that it makes it like very easy to select mm. and, like you can like select and make masks very quickly and easily once those flats are done but it's a very time consuming process so i mean there's a lot of people that like they they just make a living doing flats yeah and uh, so like you get that together and then hand that off to the kimberly the colorist and you know and then she's able to color the pages much more quickly than if, if we just gave her black and whites so it's really a 
it's really kind of a productivity thing because in the, it works really well because with digital, like you don't really need a penciler and an inker anymore. You know, now it's the, now it's the coloring that is really the most time consuming. And you can get that, you, you can like spend a lot more time on the things that are really important when that works, <clears throat> when that work has already been done. Oh, yeah, I've seen the term and I never really quite understood that. Uh, that makes sense. So basically the flattener is the one that's coming up with the color palette. I'm, I'm taking it. And then uh, the colors that's going through and rendering everything. Like, like not necessarily. I mean, you know, you know like they are kind of picking the preliminary color palette, but then the, you know, the color is kind of free to change things up as they want. It's a, uh, you know, like when you're, you know, you're coloring a panel and it's got a person on it, like the, the flatters made it so like the hair is like one solid block of yellow. Oh. And the colorist can use a, the magic wand tool in Photoshop to just click on the yellow and instantly mask it off. And then just paint whatever in the hair without affecting anything else. Oh, 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 so, okay. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I saw that in the credits. And I thought yeah. I've got to find out what this is. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of work flatting it. And it's a... Uh, I mean, it's kind of painstaking and, and honestly pretty thankless because yeah. you know they're not really responsible for hardly any of the final product. You know, they're just uh, they're just laying a foundation. Yeah, like I said, I've seen the term not all the time, but I've seen it, and I. So what exactly is that? Um, yeah. I'll tell you, comics coloring in the '90s just went through the ceiling. Um, I know in the '80s when they're starting to put things on slick paper. You know, uh, professionals were complaining about comic color, which, you know, I've seen the European albums and the coloring was nice, but uh -huh. I I never really gave it a thought. And then all of a sudden, 1990 came about and um, I didn't yeah. read much comics, but I saw their coloring and it was shocking. Yeah, the, the advent of the digital press, just, it, like, yeah. it enabled you to do so much more with the colors but i mean but at the same time you know those old comics and they had had that that limited palette of 28 doc martin's ink colors mm -hmm. that they had i mean those guys could really do a whole lot with with so very little that they had to work with that's something when desktop came about um, a guy i worked with made a comment he says you have to limit your options and he was really seasoned and we we all started in the conventional times the problem was a lot of people started seeing just the limitless stuff you could do and nothing was getting done. The other problem, and we always have this term clown vomit, things start to turn into clown vomit if you just add everything in the kitchen sink. And, right. you know, we're just talking about comics coloring really, really growing, but it's astounding what they do, but sometimes especially when they take older older comics work and recolor them sometimes it's just too yeah. much you know um, i feel like you take old inks and put new colors on them they, they almost look dead yeah yeah it's like the the styles of inking and and the way that they were colored i mean those they did those things in that way to service the printing technology that that they had you know and they, you know, they made something look great with the tools that they had. And now we're trying to recreate it with these modern fancy tools that are, honestly, they're really good at doing something else. Yeah. And I don't think that the new digital colors on old inks look very good. Yeah, I, I'm of the same mind. Um, I noticed that the better work, if they had the technology, but again, limit your options. They kind of, it's not as limited as what it was before, but um. You know, French comics, Mobius, they started recoloring, they recolored the inkle and they started using a lot of metallic looking colors and stuff at one point. And they referred to the old coloring as can cotton candy colors. And I noticed, <laughs> yeah, which kind of makes sense. And now I started noticing when they're putting inkle out later versions, they're kind of, they've updated them, but they've gone back to those, those colors he had. I see the logic to both of them, but you know, going back to your work, the coloring and and it it just adds to the art. You still see all the line work, you still see everything clearly. Um, the color is not overpowering, but it is absolutely beautiful. 
Thank you. Kimberly uh, showed like some like excellent control over her color choices in there. And, you know, like, you know, entire pages, the page looks like it, everything on that page belongs on that page. Right. And, you know, and then uh, there, there are scene changes in there where, you know, like the lighting, the mood changes, and the color palette changes for these different areas. And, uh, you know, really, I really enjoyed that, you know, about, about the work that she provided us. She, she did a great job. Yeah, color is, is a real big storytelling device. And if anybody's ever tried to color, not just the whole page, but the whole story, um, a lot of people that like comics like to make their own stuff up. You can make up your own character and come up with a color design. But when you're trying to put the whole thing together, it's a lot. All of a sudden you start thinking about the background, incidental objects. And then the other thing is, you color everything the same way, everything gets muddy and lost. Mm -hmm. um, I've even read about some colorists in the 50s. They knew how to use darker colors to take tension, attention away from certain things and lighter colors to bring attention to things that the reader needs to see. These are things like a flattener you never really think about. It's just there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I saw, saw that in the work. It, it, it reads quite well. <clears throat> well, yeah, and I should, I really should credit Kimberly a lot for that because just my, my inks by themselves, like they, they can appear pretty messy, you know, because sometimes there's just an awful lot going on in the background. But, it's, you know, I was really, really happy with the way she pulled it together. When you say that, I, I see what you mean, but I didn't feel that way. Um, when I read through the things, I, everything was clear. Um, there's a lot of stuff, but there's not too much. And I never got lost, you know, reading. You know, I didn't read the whole thing. I just saw examples on the, the Kickstarter, which was enough. It's it's a really nice project, but it reads well. But you added a lot of stuff. But again, there's no clown vomit in your work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but um, so how what, what's the plan on this? You, I think what I understood is three issues you have and how many pages uh so we're uh we started with 26 pages in the first issue uh but you know we, we pretty quickly reached the stretch goal and we're adding six pages to it and i'm adding those pages right now and uh you know that's a introduce a character in the first issue that didn't wasn't going to make an appearance until the second issue so we're gonna wind up at 32 pages for the first issue and uh, the the second issue was only planned for 22, but we could very easily go over that. And then I think we're 36 pages on the last issue. Oh, nice, nice. But uh, that's all in flux because the the first issue started as 22 pages, and you know, and then it became 24, and then 26, and now it's 32. So. <laughs> okay, okay. And does this these three issues does it wrap the whole story up? Um, are you going to revisit this, or is it going to be finished or do you know dean has, dean has huge plans for, for oh. these characters and uh you know they, they just go go on and on but um you know we didn't know if anybody was going to like it or how well received it might be so there is a complete arc you know that happens in these, right. these three issues. so if it, if it did in there like you could be satisfied with that you wouldn't be left hanging but uh but yeah there's there's so much more that that could be done and probably will be done so oh i like that i do like that Nice. Um, going back to your artwork, what what are comics that you liked and what artists have you liked in the past and currently? So, I mean, you know, I'm a 90s kid and, you know, so naturally, like, like I think almost all 90s kids are like, like oh, Jim Lee, you know, it was, yeah. like I came onto the scene and, and made a big splash. Yeah. But, uh, but I was a, you know, I was a really big Marvel Comics guy. And uh, so, like, Adam Kubert was doing Wolverine, and he was my favorite when I was a kid. So, you know, I looked at an awful lot of his stuff. And uh, I was really fortunate enough to meet a guy, uh, you know, when I was uh, about high school age, a guy named Roger Hill, who was, uh, he's kind of a, like a local uh, a golden age comics expert. And he was writing a book about Wallace Wood. And yeah. uh, I had some Photoshop skills at the time, and he, he kind of roped me into, uh, he had all this, this amazing old artwork, but a lot of it was like very badly yellowed or damaged. And, and he had me scanning these things and cleaning them up in Photoshop so he could print them in his book. And, uh, you know, spending all this time doing that, I really just kind of like fell in love with you know, like some of this, this old, you know, the like Wally Wood, Arthur Adams kind of stuff. I got so you. That's been a big influence and, uh, for me as well. 
and I mean, also like like old pinup like Olivia and Vargas kind of things, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Boris and Frank Posada, those fantasy illustrators. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I just there's a lot, I guess. No, I I can see each one of those in your work. You're not a lot of times. You see, you see some artists, especially in the beginning, you can, and Jim Lee is one of them. He wore his influences on his sleeve in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And um, he got away from that, became his own man. But a lot of times they wear them on the sleeves, some heavier than others. I didn't see that in your work. That's why I was curious. I mean, I, when you mention it, I can see all those influences in it, but you are your own person. And um, I was just curious where, where you came from. You know how you're approaching this very nice um does this you know i mean i guess it's a silly question you're talking about you got away from comics for about 10 years is this rekindled it or you got more interest in doing other comics even if this isn't as successful as you want uh i mean yeah i mean part of the problem is you know like i said i'm, I'm about to be an empty nester here and uh, yeah. i gotta find something to do with myself and this is something that, that you know just because I quit working in comics didn't mean I didn't think about it like all the time. Right. And, uh, you know, so it, it's, you know, like working on this over the, the past, like past year or so that I've been drawn again, it's really brought a, brought a lot of joy back in my life. That was kind of a, uh, you know, like, like things didn't go well in 2009 with comics. It left a really bad taste in my mouth. And uh, so, but, but working on it now as, as, as an independent, you know, you really get back to, you get to do the things that you really like doing. You know. Right, right. Um, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this today. Um, I was at the comic store today, and the person that works in the store isn't reading. You know, we were talking about a series that she recommended. She only read two issues of it, and I told her, "Thanks for recommending. I never would have picked it up, but I'm really enjoying it." And then she says, I just read the first two issues. And I said, why? One time um, I went there, the internet was down. And she was trying to get the internet service back up. She was, what am I going to do? And I looked and said, you're in a comic book store. <laughs> and, um, you know, she started laughing about it. But I'm thinking, that would be heaven. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, she was making a joke about... um. You know, she's there all the time. It's not quite the same. And I was thinking about, and I find this sad, a lot of lot of cartoonists like us, you know, they're comic book people. They love comics. But when they become professional, they really kind of stop reading them. You know, and somebody made the comment, you don't crap where you eat. And um, <laughs> I guess my, <laughs> that's a vulgar thing, but. Did you run into any of that when you started making comics or was it because when you're talking about scanning into Wally Wood pages, now that's not creating comics, but that is a, a creation process. It sounds to me like you fell in love with some of the work. Has it changed when you started yeah. making your own comics? Well, yeah, it does change. I mean, you know, making your own comics, you get to you get to make it like like how you want, you know, and uh there's a really big difference between making your own comics and making somebody else's comic. And, you know, when you're doing it for somebody else, it really becomes work, you know, and you do stuff that you're really happy with and you really like, and then they, they're like, no, you got to change that. Take that thing that you like, take it out and put in something you don't like. And, uh, you know, it can, you know, with the kind of, uh, the, as poorly as comics pay and for the amount of work that it is, it, it really can become very soul crushing very fast. Yeah. And uh, so when I started working again, I I, did, I didn't want to approach publishers again, you know, for that reason. I'm like, like oh, this is either going to be fun or I'm not going to do it at all, you know. And I feel like I can, you know, I can make, you know, I can make the best of myself if I'm doing, you know, the things that I want to do. But, um, you know, kind of circling back a little bit, like, uh, you know, looking at other people's stuff. Like you don't really lose it. You shouldn't ever lose interest in doing that because it was looking at other people's stuff that made you the artist that you are. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you stop looking at things and you, you're just doing just doing you all the time. You, you stagnate. And you don't grow. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's um, that's one thing I've seen. Some some people only want to create their own stuff and they thrive on that. And I've seen other people that. 
really only want to be a hired gun, you know, which, I mean, they, they thrive on that. But if I were to do it, I, when you're working with somebody else, I can see where it's a learning process. You know, you pick things, you know, whenever you're around other people and, and doing things, part of the energy picks up off of you. You learn different approaches, I would imagine. I've never done that. But um, I don't know, just doing what other people want you to do. And uh, what you're talking about can be soul crushing when you do something. I say, well, this isn't going to work. Let's change it. No. <laughs> that's, that's I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a 3D artist at, at my day job. Yeah. You know, I'm the lead 3D artist, and I do uh, I do CNC programming, and we make uh, you know, I make I make molds, and I design emblems that go on like cars and boats and stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I spend my nine to five doing work for other people, and and it pays pretty well, you know, for that. Right. But uh, but that's what I do at work. It's like I'm I'm the hired gun in there. I do their stuff for them. You know, and it you know it's it's a fun, satisfying job, but it's you know it's not really it's not really enough. And I, I think some people, if you want to do comics for a living, then you're going to be a hired gun. You know, you're, you're going to suck it up and do things that you don't want to do, you know, uh, because you have to make a living. You got to eat. Right. You know, but, but for me, it's, gosh, I'd have to make an awful lot of money doing independent comics to quit my day job. Right. So, you know, if I can do both and, you know, it's like a luxury to be able to just really enjoy what you're doing. That's, you know, basically that just what you just said describes everything in life. Um, especially if you're any kind of an artist, I, I, I managed. And I'd always have people come in, I want to do something more creative. I was always in print production, you know, in graphics. And um, basically it wasn't being creative. They just wanted to do what they wanted to do and that was it and get paid. Uh, well, it's, you know, yeah. unfortunately that... That's what we all want, but that doesn't really happen. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, you got to eat. Kids got to eat. You know, and it is a business. You're trying to put out certain services and stuff. But, um, yeah, that's that's the thing. Um, a lot of times people like you find an outlet of doing what they want to do while they're holding down a, a full-time job. Uh, one thing you're talking about, what you do for a living, that's another thing I was going to talk about with some of them, some of the things you're offering in the Kickstarter. Yeah. You had some patches, which I think are absolutely beautiful, and you have a challenge coin. Um, the design of those are fantastic, and when you just described what you did, okay, I can see that evident. <laughs> that was yeah. great. Yeah, that kind of stuff, and uh, and I sculpted the mini, too, that's up there. And uh, yeah. I mean, that. that Kind of stuff that you know after doing my day job that i've had for like 20 years now it's you know those things come like pretty easy and, and they're still pretty fun for me so i mean i'm glad that you like the design of the patch and the challenge coin because you know i'm i want one of those challenge coins really bad and i'm taking a loss on it on the campaign just so i can have one. <laughs> oh, i got you yeah yeah it's challenge coins are something popular I actually, I'll be honest, I was in the military in the 80s. I'd never heard of them until recently. <laughs> yeah, I I was on a ship and we never, I never saw them. Um, I've heard hmm. podcasts talking about them and now everybody in the whole planet seems to have them. I've got a few now, but they weren't any I earned or got. But I guess you got a challenge coin when you're in the military? Uh, I wasn't in the military, but you know, oh. my uh, you know my dad was an airborne ranger, and my grandpa was in the air force, and you know we have a lot of military in my family. Yeah. And uh, you know we've got a, a friend of my dad's is a guy that we call Uncle Bill, and uh, he had a number of them. Yeah, I see people that you know the a lot of a lot of military after you you retire or if you get out you put together um a box and you have you know stuff that we're in the military and a lot of people have a lot of challenge coins but yeah. that was nothing that i ever saw maybe i was just a terrible soldier <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah well let's talk about some of the things you're offering in kickstarter because you mentioned the the mac uh, the little statues the maquettes which are absolutely beautiful and um, all the other things let's go over this stuff so yeah, the the mini is a uh, it's just a mini bust, and uh, uh, my son uh, he does three uh, D printing, and mm. so we've actually 
got like a number of different kinds of 3D printers around the house and they're running all the time. And uh, and I do 3D modeling and sculpting, you know, for a living. So that's something that uh, is an excellent fundraiser for us because we can actually, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's really expensive to have somebody sculpt that for you and then you have to send out to have it printed elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I can actually do that like here at the house. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it seems like a no brainer to, to offer that because I know a lot of people like them. And, uh, and we can do it for, you know, like our cost is not very much on printing those. It's only it's only about a dollar, I think, to print one. Wow. Wow. So, so if, you, if you send out for it, though, you know, by the time you've had it shipped to your house, you, know, you might be paying like 15 or 20 dollars for it. Yeah, well, that's that's the nature of the business. Also, it's the work put in behind because, you know, you do this, you understand how to do it. But most of us, that's just a dream. And um, if you ever looked in a 3D application and you don't have an experience in it, it's it's not pleasant. <laughs> yeah. It's, something you, when you're doing 3D work like for a job, like with, you learn pretty quickly that um, like, like once you've learned two 3D programs, then you can pretty well easily figure out all of them. But getting through that first one or two, it's like alien. You know, it doesn't oh, yeah. look like anything. Yeah. It's, and the it's very frustrating to learn. <laughs> the results you get is like, wait a minute, is this looking like what I got in my head? <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. So, um, but the campaign is still going on. I'm taking it, even though you've far, you doubled what? You close to doubled what you were originally wanting to do. Yeah, dang near. Um, I think we were at 3,800 today, as of today. Yeah, that's what I saw. But um, but, uh, yeah, we had 10 days, 10 days left. And this is your first campaign. Yeah, it's my first campaign. Okay. But I, I've had a lot of help, a lot of community help from people that have done lots of campaigns. Right. Yeah. Well, congratulations on it. You know, the people people you don't see is what really makes a big difference in it. But um, I, we've had some people on the show, we talk a lot about Kickstarters. As a matter of fact, my co-host, he's gone to the dark side. He's he stopped buying comics at the store. He's oh, no. Kickstarter Palooza. Uh, if you look at Kickstarter, you see his picture in the margin. Um, his wife even had to put down a, a budget for him. <laughs> oh, no. Well, he's, you know, he's just, He's enjoyed it, and I guess it's a mouse click away, but he's completely gone into all the independent work and Kickstarter for comics and, and gaming. And um, yeah, I think it, I think it's a just a wonderful like shop there that you can look through because like when you go to a comic store, you're kind of you're kind of restricted to it's like going to a music store. You can only yeah. you only pick from what the record labels want you to pick from. And a lot of times at a comic store, you you can only pick from what Diamond wants to wants to carry and show you, or what the store owner w thinks will sell. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean, and that's I, I like the I like the variety. You know, um, it's no holds barred in Kickstarter as far as what you see, and um, everybody has different tastes. You know, and when you go to the stores, which don't get me wrong, I do enjoy going to stores. But a lot of times you really have to search hard and have to tell the owner, can you pick this up for me? You pick this up, but they don't put them on the yeah. shelves. But I do like all that. Uh, we have a lot of people come on the show with Kickstarter campaigns. And one thing they told me was once you've had campaigns going, each one gets easier and easier. And um, so I, it, I'm impressed that your first campaign is so successful already. And even though you said it was you know, I can't remember what your wording was for the beginning, but it was conservative. But I don't uh, think I think you raised a lot of money pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, well, I set the goal at two thousand dollars, and I, I thought I could probably do better than that, but, but I was afraid to set the bar too high. Um, so, but yeah, but at at, uh, at two thousand dollars, I actually would have lost money on the deal after paying the flatter and the colorist and you know for all of the other things involved. Um. But I'm, 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 I couldn't be more thrilled that it's doing as well as, as it is. And uh, I think I owe a lot of it to you. The Kickstarter creator community is a, an incredibly supportive group yeah. of people. And uh, it, you know, if you have questions, you just you throw it out there and ask, and 100 people will answer you. Oh, that's nice. I like and, that. Uh, yeah. Like other people that have their campaigns going, like 
if your campaign is struggling, you know, they'll they'll put your campaign into their updates and send it out to their backers and share it on their social media. And uh, I mean, it's a that's been probably the best part of the whole thing is that sense of community because you know there's there's not a lot of comic book artists out there especially where i live in wichita kansas so you know there's not really like a like a peer group here that i can really be a part of so i mean it's been been amazing for me to have that online yeah the internet has changed everything um completely because i I grew up in oklahoma so we played football against each other but i um (laughs) Yeah, but it was the same way. Um, as I got through life, I started meeting people. When you're on the internet, all of a sudden you meet people from everywhere that are comic book people, and it's um, it's mm-hmm. a nice world. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that interests me, I, I've said this in a, a past episode. Somebody's talking about the business side of it, and I noticed everything you talk about. You're you're thinking of the cost. And how to put it in a lot of creative people have absolutely no clue about that and um is this something that you've just learned as time's gone by if you always had this in you um when you take on a project are you thinking of the cost and the nuts and bolts of it how, how do you balance yeah. all this well i mean it's it's ultimately well what it boils down to is uh my, my wife makes handmade jewelry and you know she's wanting to graduate to doing that for, for a living one day, right? Mm-hmm. And so we went to this kind of arts and crafts show where there was a lot of other jewelry makers. And w- walking around this place, I saw a, like a bunch of uh, like like 60, 70 year old like artists and photographers and stuff. And they all had tents and they all had, they had their wares up, and they kept saying the same thing over and over. They're like, "This is our retirement, you know, because we we gather up our work and we go around and we sell it." And I'm like, "Man, that doesn't sound too bad," you know. So I started thinking about for myself, I'm like, you know, like how many books would I have to make? How much artwork would I have to have and put together over the next 20 years? And maybe I could retire that way. So, so I try to be very conscious of like what things cost and like, is this going to be profitable in the long run? Uh, because that's, that's what I'm doing. You know, this is uh, like my own 401k I'm, I'm trying to invest in and, you know, like hopefully find something that will have that kind of value for me later on. Yeah. And it, uh, you know, I mean, you could do anything that you wanted to in, in comic books, but there's a it's a very careful balance between, you know, you, you know, you have to live and be happy, but you also have to eat, you know, and right. uh, if you can do work that will feed you into the future, which you can't do as a work for hire artist, you know, once once you work and got paid, you know, it's gone. It's not yours anymore. But, you know, when you have your own properties and your own titles and your own art, you, you can actually continue you know, to, to earn money on that. And I'm hoping to do that someday. Yeah, that's, that's something a lot of people didn't think about in the past. And um, of all people, he just passed away right recently. He was uh, Al Jaffe from Mad Magazine. Did all the oh, fun. yeah. 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 He was, um, I, I'm here in St. Petersburg, Florida. And there was, um, he was a journalist, but he had a radio, uh, an internet uh, podcast called Mr. Media. Uh, he wrote a book about Will Eisner's how I knew him, but I read him in the paper all the time here. But the podcast, he um, he gave me the, the URL, so I went to it. When I started downloading, he entered people like uh, interviewed people like uh, Joe Sennett, you know, um, that was the anchor for Marvel. I found that I was downloading the cartoonist. But after I downloaded about 20 of those, I started listening. He interviewed the CEO of Roto-Rooter. <laughs> he interviewed <laughs> writers, um, business people, uh, CEOs. Um, he, My wow. favorite, he interviewed Raquel Welch. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, was my, I, I liked Raquel Welch when I was a kid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, any woman is beautiful and is in a movie with dinosaurs and shrinks down a little itty-bitty submarine is okay with me. <laughs> but, um... Anyway, one time he had Al Jaffe, and I can't remember the other gentleman. It was another one of these, you know, Mad Magazine guys, older ones. But what they started talking about was ownership. Because most of the work they did was owned by Gaines. You know, he had very strict rules on, you know, if he did it for him, he bought it outright and he owned it. Right. And uh, which, I mean, these men earned a good living. 
and um and he you know took him on these massive vacations every year you know it wasn't like you know a bad thing but i just remember the whole interview they were talking about ownership is important and it's something very few cartoonists up until the past 15 years don't own their own work there right. are some that have done well but very few um especially especially in the past it's one heartbreaking story after another so yeah, yeah. work for hire can be good you know and i mean you can earn a living at it yeah but owning your own stuff i don't know i that's what i would want to do yeah and platforms like like kickstarter fund my comic things like that they i mean they they really do make it possible to do that because you know you can you can run your campaign and you can you can get the comic funded and to help you pay your colorist and this this that and the other and uh, it helps you get it done but once you have it done you know you know when you start your next your next campaign you can add on the first book and then you can start going to conventions and you have your own books to sell yeah you know and uh you know you can if you're disciplined and you work hard and you don't give up you know eventually you'll you'll have quite a lot to bring to market and and that's kind of the idea and, and ownership is really i mean that's a big deal because you know you could work for do work for hire stuff and have a successful career for 30 years and then at the end of it you i mean have nothing to show for it you know because you you've already eaten all your earnings yeah 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 at the same time though you have a lot to show <laughs> you know, yeah. you've done <laughs> names on it i mean i i know what you mean but at the same time you people know your name you know and right. seen your work so that's a good thing but I don't know. I would, I would want to own some of it, if not all of it. But yeah. <laughs> that's something. It wasn't possible in the past, except for some. Really, there's always some people that just seem to understand how the world works right away. You know, but those people are rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish I'd figured out stuff, you know, a decade ago instead of spinning my wheels the way that it was, because you know it did turn into just uh, like a. a big chunk of lost time really time that i could have been working but but wasn't well that's you know you you're one of us i mean <laughs> that's that's, how everybody, that's what everybody yeah does. yeah and we it, all kind of do that don't we <laughs> yeah we do but you know it's what makes you you and there's other things that you did that you don't realize well maybe that's what i needed to do at the time oh yeah you know? i mean I raised my boys. I don't doubt. I don't regret that at all. Oh yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the best few things ever made. Yeah, well, and that, and also you raised them. Thanks for making the world a better place instead of just having kids that Lord of the Flies, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank, thanks for doing all that. Um, um, well, we were yeah, talking. Seen, so. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I was just yeah, I was just gonna say you haven't seen those kids eat. So I mean, it is a little bit Lord of the Flies over here. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how that works, and I think that's a universal thing. But um, okay, we were talking about your your project here, and you said Dean had a lot of plans. Mm -hmm. But do you have interest in doing some other work, or would you just be happy just doing this one series? No, I've got um, I've got lots of other things planned, and uh, like, like like somewhere down down the road, um, like hopefully about four to six campaigns down the road. I've, I've got one of those pet projects that, that you get that you've had in your head since you were 15. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've had these characters in my head just living rent-free forever and ever. And that's a, you know, that's a big bucket list thing is I want to make this book about these two characters that I've had, in, you know, just in my mind forever. And, uh, but when I do it, you know, like I want there to be an audience for it. I want to have some, you know, a little bit more skill and know-how and have been through some of these campaigns so that I can, you know, so I can really launch it and maybe get it off to the best start that I can give it. But uh, yeah, ultimately, everything that I'm doing is building me towards that. I got you. Okay. Now, you know, you've had this for a long time. Have you found that since it's been in your head and it's so close to you, is it, is it hard to execute and put out compared to like a new project? <clears throat> a, a little bit because 
um, because you second guess yourself so much. Like yeah. you want it, you want it to be perfect, and you know it's not going to be perfect. And uh, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm not Stan Lee, right? I'm not going to make like the next huge big thing. But <clears throat> you know, but, but what if it is, you know, shouldn't it be as good as it can be? And and I feel like that's the biggest thing that's going to hold me or somebody like me up is worrying about whether or not it's good enough. Yeah. Um, you know. Again, most people are that way. There are some people that think they're the greatest thing in the, the planet, which <laughs> those rare, rare, rare. Um, especially if you're putting something out that came from your from your soul. It's kind of like um, those dreams you have of going to middle school in your underwear. <laughs> you're <exposed> yeah. To <laughs> but yeah, I, I was curious about that. I it makes me happy when you say that an idea you had since you were young. Um, to me, that's the best stuff. A lot of a lot of creators and and comics from the 70s that I I love the later 70s. That was um creators that had something when they were a kid and putting those out. Um, Walt Simons' run on Thor in the 80s is some of my very favorite comics. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay, you're aware. Absolutely one of my favorite series. And I mean, Jack Kirby's Thor is, you know, right up there. It's my favorite. But Walt Simonson came in, and that was an idea he had when he was reading Thor when he was in school. It was something. and um, But it's kind of hard when you have something so close to you inside to get it out. And... um. So I, I I look forward to seeing more of that, and I'm glad you got other projects to do. But again, this one you're doing, yeah, it's 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 staggering. It's really nice looking. It reads well. Um, there's a lot to the thing, and it's seasoned work. Um, a lot of time, I love all the diversity in Kickstarter and the energy. Uh, sometimes you can see it's somebody's first work, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody has to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. But you also get some where this one, this isn't your first work. You can see that. It's really rendered, and all the extras you put in there just make it even better. Well, thank you for that. It was, I mean, it was, it was a labor of love, this project. It was quite a lot of work, and we're really proud of it. And, uh, you know, and I, I can't thank my team enough for, for helping me make it as, as good as it is. That's one more question on this. I hate to keep bothering this. What was it like working with other people on a project like this? How, how did you get everybody together and how did you coordinate all this? Um, it's so much better than like working for publishers that I did in the past where they were like, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, you're inking these pages, do this and and email me when you're done. Right. And that's it. No more contact, no, no, no feedback or, you know, running things back and forth, nothing like that. Just, just do your work and get, and get it in on time. Yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, working with, you know, with uh, Habib and Kimberly and Dean, you know, it's like, like we, we all talk to each other, you know, over, you know, over text or, you know, the chat online and, uh, you know, things go back and forth. And it, it's such a better dynamic because then you know, it, everybody feels involved. Everybody has like kind of a stake in it. And, uh, you know, like, like Dean is, uh, you know, Dean's like the co-creator, right? So he's, he's basically part owner of this property. Right. And so, it's, you know, you know, he's, uh, you know, personally invested in, into its well-being. And so, you know, that's just been tremendous. And, uh, you do, you get, you get a much better feeling of, of being part of a team and being part of a group. Than you do, you know, when you're just uh, when when you're just being paid to work on it for someone else. Right. So how we met Kimberly, uh, uh, we just went out. There's a number of Facebook groups, and uh, you know, for artists looking for work, we basically just posted some art and says, does anybody want to color this? And uh, and uh, you know, about about 90 people responded in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> So it was like, uh, would anybody here be willing to color a test page, you know, and uh, 12 people were willing to, but only three people actually did. And, uh, you know, out of, out of those three people, you know, Kimberly's work was a, was a big standout. And she kind of, and she kind of did just what I was hoping for, you know, and, uh, you know, so, you know, like her, her page rate presented a tremendous value too. 
Um, she's that, that poor kid's working for peanuts, and I wish I could pay her more. Well, that's one thing we talked about. You mentioned about your your first goal on Kickstarter. Uh-huh. You said you were going to lose money, you know, uh-huh. and I mean, it's worked out better. But, you know, and even Kimberly, we're talking about not getting a lot, you know, what she's worth. But I think that's what it takes is you want to do the work. You know, what I mean, right. you want to do it for free, basically. I mean, you can't. But that's, to me, that's what makes the project was the people come in and do it. And hopefully the residuals will come in, you know, and it's the stepping stone to better things. But, I mean, everybody on the project seems like they believe in it, they want to do it, and it shows in the work. Yeah, that that desire is, I mean, it's a big part of anything that's going to be successful doing this this work is... yeah, like all, all these other colorists that responded and but nobody wanted, you know, like like once you put out that idea, you want to are you willing to color a test page? And, you know, like they're done talking to you and so they don't really <laughs> want to do the work. They kind of just want to get paid, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's OK, too. Like, I understand. Yeah, you know, welcome but, to the human race. <laughs> I, I don't, we all want to get paid, you know, but, you know, you, know, you want to find somebody that wants to get paid, you know, like, like, and wants to do the best work that they can do and is interested in your project. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I feel very lucky, you know, with Kimberly. It, it's a good team. It's a nice project. Um, and the Kickstarter, when this is published, the Kickstarter is still going on. So if you find this interesting, we'll have examples on the on the blog post. I'll also have links to this Kickstarter. And I highly recommend it. I think you, you'll enjoy the thing. Uh, any fin- you know, parting words? Um, gosh, I can't think of a thing. <laughs> well, we, we covered a lot, and you've been fantastic. Thanks. Uh, so, um, and on the Kickstarter, you can contact, you know, if you have any other questions. Um, Kickstarter page, I went through it. It's very informative, you know, um, and you have some frequently asked questions, you know, all kinds of stuff in there. Um, you know, I highly recommend everybody check this project out. Um, I normally have a spiel, so I'm not going to talk about it. We have fake comic book covers we use for the Facebook page and the Facebook group to um, announce a new episode. If you'd like to do one, you can send it to the blog under contact. Uh, we have examples in the color cover gallery. We can't pay you for it because we don't make any money on the show, but it's yours to own. And if you allow us to, we'll add it to the cover gallery and you'll live on an infamy. Uh, we have t-shirts. It's on the sidebar of the blog under merchandise. It's not to make us rich. It's just to help us with the hosting fees. Uh, listen to the show. Wear the shirt. Everybody, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, read more comic books. You can hear our most recent 20 episodes on iTunes. If you would like to hear our older episodes, you can find them on our blog. Just go to bunchofdorks.com and click, click on, on the Cyclops. Your Dimension can be found on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe, rate, leave a review, tell a friend, or like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening.